Hello and welcome to the Eastern Kicks podcast, a regular magazine program about East Asian film led by me, Andrew Heskins, founder and grandmaster of EastonKicks.com, and James Mudge, our leading writer. Hey-o. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at the latest films, news, and festivals, often chatting to filmmakers and stars along the way. Welcome to our latest show. This time, we're taking a close look at the Daimajin trilogy with the help of Eastern Kicks regular Philip O'Connor. Hey guys. How you doing? But before we go any further, we always have that most important question. <laughs> what are you drinking this episode, James? I'm drinking a very modestly, well, no, not modestly, very cheaply priced bottle of uh, fruity red wine, which mm. is actually not bad. It's been chilling in the fridge and it's very, well, it's sufficiently fruity. So let's see. Yeah, What's that yes. you got there? So uh, this this episode, I'm once again returning to Eight Sail Brewery. Okay. Um, and it is their Tears of a Clown. Uh, they've been clever with the way they spelt tears yeah. there, and it's a red eye IPA, six point five percent. Very nice, very very colourful bottle. Mm. <laughs> How about you, Philip? You've got a very interesting looking mug there. Um, it's just a uh, Hennessy with a bit of honey in it. Mm. Interesting. What honey? Hen- what mind blown? What? <laughs> uh, yeah. um, I, I I didn't have anything to dilute it. What I was like, I have to dilute this somehow because if I try and drink Hennessy on the podcast, we won't get past the first film in the trilogy. <laughs> it'd be fine. We yeah, would. it'd be we, great. We, we'd yeah. get to the second and third ones, and it'd just go a bit wacky. Yeah, <laughs> things what have done could possibly go wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very little. But putting honey in there would dry just the sugar. Yeah, it's I, just I, to sweeten. Nothing more oh than that. My God. <laughs> I, that would drive me mental drinking that. I can't handle the sugar. Like anyway, <laughs> anyway, fair play. Just in the booze, isn't it? <laughs> just in the booze. Sugar in the booze. Nothing else. Majin, the monster of terror. Jin, the monster of terror. Anyway, so let's talk about these Dynagen films, shall we? Yeah, so they've just been released by Arrow Video. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a limited edition free Blu-ray set. Yeah. Um, so where should we start, Philip, with the? Okay, so. The uh, Daimajin films, which compose of Daimajin, uh, Return of Daimajin, and Wrath of Daimajin, um, there's a kind of a thing about the titles, and there are various different titles owing to interpretation of what Japanese translates into English, but that's the titles I'm running with. So those these three were made in early 1966 by Daiei Films in Japan, and they were filmed simultaneously um, to be released at the other end of the year. Um, Daiei Film was one of those studios that was formed in the post-war period. They kind of formed the, the big three. So there was Toho, Toei, and Daiei. And Daiei, um, a lot of their bread and butter at the time was uh, period drama films, you know, mm, Samurai mm. And, and the Warring State stuff. But in the mid-1960s, uh, head of studio uh, Masaichi Nagata uh, hit upon the idea of, well, Toho have their giant nuclear-powered lizard Godzilla, we need to have our own. And he came up with Gamera, which is a ginormous uh, turtle who can fly mm. in uh, in the sky and basically uh, attack demons. But <laughs> at the same time that Gamera was being a big success, uh, Nagata was looking to his next big thing. And he charged um, Daiei um, Kyoto, which is basically they had different divisions to the studio. So Daiei Kyoto's head, Akinari Suzuki, he said, make me another Gamera. So Suzuki had just seen um, a 1936 film called The Golem by Julien Duvier, um, mm. which was made in Czechoslovakia but recorded in French. And it was basically about the, um, the uh, Jewish legend of the, the clay uh, figure brought to life to destroy mankind kind of thing, or the enemies of whoever brought it to life. And he thought, I can do that, but I can do it with Japan. So he went looking for... A hook, and what he came to was um, he didn't want to use traditional Japanese gods because a lot of the gods are, as uh, Arrow notes in their their booklet, uncinematic in their depiction. <laughs> They're overweight or balding, 
they're not heroic looking and they're not monstrous looking. So he was looking for his his inn, and he came across a bunch of uh, figures called uh, Haniwara, say Haniwa, and these are from the earlier period in Japan, before the imperial line started, and they're basically just clay statues of warriors with no face, and they're basically meant to protect a circle around a shrine. And he said, well, I'll use that. And he charged um, his production team, okay, come up with a storyline, come up with um, uh, a plot, make sure you have everything you need. The other thing we should mention is that Daie were in a studio that spent an awful lot of money on their productions, to the detriment of the studio. So Nagata uh, was told that it would cost 10 million yen, which I worked it out to be, it's several hundred thousand, but I'm working off 1966 prices. And <laughs> in it, he was told, oh, it's going to cost 10 million. He didn't wince. He just gave them the 10 million yen and off they went. Um, the films themselves, even though they were filmed simultaneously, were released separately because you couldn't, like this, this is before the whole idea of a shared universe or the MCU or any of that. So, all these films were staggered out over the year. Um, I don't know, like, there's no real point in talking about the plot of a Daimajin film because they're often the same. Um, <laughs> yeah, very the, much. But we can cover it once, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> in essence, the film is usually set in the warring periods of Japan, um, which is about the 1600s, there or thereabouts. And in it... It was usually depicted as a village somewhere in the, the mainland of, of Japan, around the Kyoto, Osaka area. It's never actually nailed down in any of the films, because everywhere that they come up with in this plot is a fictional place. So we never know where we're actually set, but ostensibly we're in the mainland of Japan. And in it, the local villagers pray to a god, in this case it's Daimajin, and it usually happens that someone comes along either takes control of the local area or invades the area and then purposely goes out of their way to destroy a god. In other words, the clay statue of Daimajin because it's either giving the people hope against uh, the occupation or it's distracting them or it's doing something else. The minions who are sent up usually attack Daimajin and within several seconds they are instantly killed by the mountainside. And then the film is basically a countdown for about another 15 to 20 minutes as we realize the monster is going to awaken, it's going to come down the mountainside, and it's going to murder everyone in its path, which happens to be the bad guys. Hmm. That's pretty, yeah. I mean, yeah that's very, that's very fair summary yeah, from what yeah, I've seen yeah. at the first two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always, yeah, it's always kind of the last 15 minutes or so of it, which is kind of what yeah. surprised me about the film. I mean, I must admit, you know, I'd, I'd probably seen pictures of old Damajan, you know, many years ago, but I don't mm. think I'd seen the film. So uh, just going by, you know, other things we've covered on the podcast, whether it's like Gamera, you know, Godzilla and stuff, I was expecting this to be a more of a full-on sort of kaiju, you know, destruction yeah. type film, whereas he, as you say, he only comes in right right at the very end uh, and stuff. And the rest of the films are much more uh, taken up with the actual, you know, an actual plot of sorts and everything. I mean, the same plot each time, but there is, you know, they're quite different to what I expected. Mm. So... In each film, the producers and the writers are playing fast and loose with mythology. Um, for example, while Daimajin is kind of a, a, an avatar of, of a, a Shinto god, it's based upon an earlier period in Japan. Um, uh, it's, it's a period in Japanese history where scholars have tried to link it to the imperial Japanese line, so therefore giving them an unbroken, you know, 2,000 years of... <laughs> Of imperial okay. rule <laughs> yeah. but the basic nuts and bolts of it is uh, there is a, a mention in the Chinese journal from thousands of years ago called the kingdom of Yamatai which is ruled over by a teenage princess in Japan that is literally a, an entry point in an imperial J Chinese booklet and that's it it's never mentioned again so hmm. in that time period you had a lot of god worship so you had um, Majin as they're called um, okay. and Majin kind of imbued the, the kind of the concept of an elemental force, fire, wind, water, that sort of thing. Um, Dai Majin in our films doesn't really have a kind of a, a power. He's more or less told to be the, the god of the mountain. Now, though, I will say that the first film is different from these two films that go after it in that they hadn't quite figured out the formula to Dai Majin. 
because they were, you know, it was the very first film, it was the very first uh, thing to be produced. But there's a lot more elements to the film, the first film, where uh, it's not a criticism of the, the, the second and third movies, but I find the first film more interesting in that it plays a bit more with mythology. So it kind of it kind of layers things on. There's Shintoism, there's Buddhism, there's uh, imperialism, there's uh, callbacks to prehistory in Japan, there's elements of Christian persecution. But yeah. for, for me, the first film is kind of like the, the most interesting of the lot, not just because it's the one that sets out the formula for the other two movies, but it's also the one that has the most interesting plot line. The second and third films I do love dearly, but it's more to do with the fact of they seem to be getting away with a lot more fun. They're mm. killing a lot more people because, like, <laughs> the amount of villagers who are murdered in the second film is catastrophic. Like, <laughs> the the main kind of daimo who has taken over that area, I, I don't like. He's ostensibly supposed to be building some sort of um, battlement that will let him lob. Ca- I, I I I'm I'm not kidding you. This is the actual plot line of the second movie. He's building a giant cannon so he can fire it at other kingdoms nearby. And the thing is, he's killing his his uh, his slave labor faster than he can build his ta- uh, his uh, cannon. I don't think he actually gets the cannon finished at the end of the film because I imagine comes along and does a lot of property damage, so we never get to see the cannon in action. It, it's it's one of those things where, taken as a whole, as we've we've mentioned, the plot is kind of repetitive, but it's the little intricate bits which I, I'd like to go into later because there's, there's so much material. I actually didn't realize there was that much material to the movie. I mm. saw this film as kind of like, oh, it's a kaiju film, that te- where the film takes three quarters of the, the runtime to get the kaiju to turn up. But the more I watched it, um, the more I listened to some of the special features, the more I read up on it, the more intricate the film becomes in, in terms of its construction. But ostensibly, um, I, I like the fact that while the plot line doesn't change, the elements that make up each film are subtle and they're different. So um, the first film kind of deals with um, a, it's essentially um, a palace intrigue which has a monster at the end of it. And uh, for me, the palace intrigue is basically, there's a coup, the the good lord, you know, the, 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 the benevolent one, the guy who lets the villagers do whatever they want, he gets murdered and his, uh, his son and daughter get spirited away to uh, a shrine near the gods, uh, a statue and meanwhile our usurper has been grounding the local people into a paste and what actually triggers it is the local priestess who's been minding the two kids for the um the period of time that the film spans tries yeah that's a sort of 10 year uh, 10 year interview. yeah it is, it's yeah, literally yeah, like yeah. 10 yeah. years <laughs> later <laughs> and everyone's oh, grown look, up they've, they've, they've grown up they're about 30 years <laughs> older how'd that happen yeah um <laughs> She kind of ostensibly tries to warn the, the, the now guy in charge, look, don't do this, please don't uh, anger the god. And of course, he takes that as a red rag to a bull and says, okay, go off and destroy everything now, please. And the first film, it, it's if you remove Daimajin, you would be left with um, uh, a G. Daigeki period film, as I said earlier on. Mm-hmm. It's just a political yeah. intrigue. There are people being cut down so this kind of would feel feel more of a kind of a nakatsu cinema of the 60s kind of period drama where people are being uh, caught up now i want to point something out these films were kind of watched by a, a teenage to young audience the amount of people who are killed in the first film on screen is kind of it's kind of catastrophic and i'm kind of sitting there going i can't imagine what a parent would be thinking going into this in 1966, I'm assuming that they enjoyed it because they went back to the fourth, second and third film. For the, the second film, the second film kind of deals more, as I said, it's more of a an army invades a local area to take over a more prosperous region. And in the center of it is, a, is an island where the god lives. And this is where, as I was saying, the film starts to play fast and loose with kind of mythology because you essentially have a prehistorical god on an island surrounded by shinto shrines but there's a buddhist uh bosu bell at the top of the temple so 
the film never makes any kind of uh, implication as to, well, are they just muddling it together? The film is just uh, presupposed that this is how the local villagers believe things to go and this is how it, uh, how they believe the god protects them. The second film I find um, is a bit more action-packed. Um, there's a lot more death and destruction. And for my money, while the first film is my favourite one, the second film kind of... You can clearly see the canvas starting to open up. Um, you see a lot more people involved. The other thing is, is that uh, the second film kind of, the first film makes kind of a, a an overt re reference to the suppression of religion. In this case, it's it's Shintoism. But like, if you've studied any of the warring periods, um, period, there is a period during the 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 I believe it's the Meiji. Uh, era where Christianity was basically suppressed and ejected from Japan and people were, you know, imprisoned, killed and what have you. Whereas in the second film, the overt use of Christian iconography is much more defined. It's way more implicit. Um, uh, there's a main character called Lady Sayuri. She's, um, she's the former lady of the kingdom that is invaded at the beginning of the film. Um, she kind of takes on the role of the priestess role from the first film, but in this spectacular moment in the uh, film near the the end of the second half, or sorry, the second third, um, she's crucified on a cross, completely you know spread eagled with her hands out, and then put in front of a burning uh, platform, and she kind of uh, it looks more like Christian iconography, you know like. Uh, the the Salem witch trials that sort of kind of imagery, and the other thing is is that in the the, the moment where the god gets summoned in each film, Daimajin is summoned in a different manner. In the first film, he just basically climbs out of the mountain and begins stomping down the mountain and stepping on people. In the second film, he is actually destroyed and cast into the water. Again, more religious symbology, but in the second film, he rises from the water and parts the sea Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments style and the island splits in half and he just basically walks his way from the island to the mainland uh, to do battle with the, uh, the the invading army's forces again it's one of those things where it's, a, it's an implicit link between the religious aspect of the local people and the kind of pragmatic modern aspect of the samurai who have taken over in each film but for the third film, the third film is, I have to say, one of the most different of the lot. If the first two films kind of are more about Shintoism and the relationship between the, the, the land owners and the land workers, the third film implicitly goes towards uh, the Ainu the people of North Japan about more to do with the fact of their belief in a kind of an avatistic, sorry, avatistic uh, view of gods you know like there's the, the 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 sky god there's the mountain god there's the ground god so that the film still incorporates Daimajin into this but makes it so that instead of being the lord of the mountain as he is in the first two films he is merely a component of the mountain and works alongside the other elements of the mountain to protect the local area um the third film uh is also one of those films where you kind of know that it's it's wrapping up. They've they've done their production. They're winding down the, the trilogy, and they're getting ready to release the film. But in this, the third film, it's more of an adventure movie, whereas the other one is kind of straight laced period drama. People being hacked to pieces, uh, you know, people being uh, uh, imprisoned or executed. The, th the third film takes place with uh, four kids going to rescue their parents who have been imprisoned by the local warlord to. Um, to uh, build his 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 latest contraption and uh, latest um, machinery, but the film kind of takes on a kind of a, a more childlike adventure where they cross the mountain, they endure hardships, and near towards the end of the film, they kind of they're at their wits' end. They've they've more or less run out of food. They've run out of time. They're being pursued by the the uh, the warlord's people, and suddenly Daimajin who has not been mentioned except for the fact of that's his mountain, don't go near it. Um, he mysteriously just... It's its one of those moments in the film where I kind of sat there with my hand on my cheek on, wow, you didn't see that one coming. He rises out of snow 
without melting it with the body of a child in his arms going, who killed this child? I shall destroy these people now. It's one of those moments where, oh, I didn't see that one coming. That was an interesting take. At the, <laughs> at the end of the film, um, kind of, it's, it's one of those endings where the order has been restored. The bad guys have been uh, defeated. The people are happy. But I found that the ending of the, the, the third movie is kind of, it's kind of a letdown. It just ends, you know, it's, it's just, you know, Dimagin has killed everyone and now Dimagin is going away and everyone's happy. And it just ends, whereas the second film has a more layered ending to it. And the first film has a more conclusive, more psychologically deep ending where um, Dimagin is appeased and goes away rather than he completes his task, so to speak, and goes away. So, um, yeah, I mean, taken as a whole, as a trilogy, the films themselves, I, I, I kind of like their, their each individual intent. You could watch each and every one of them separately and not have to watch the first or the third to get it. But taken as a whole, you watch as the character of Daimajin evolves from this vengeful, angry god to this basically Godzilla-like avenger mm. of children and animals everywhere. Always the kids. Mm. That's always the kids. Like the kids in the in the Gamera films, True. The Godzilla films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's a cool. I mean, he, you know, even like taking the plots out of it and stuff like that. And it's very interesting to hear these details because, um, you know, I didn't pick up too much of that. You know, just when watching them. Um, but he's a very cool. Even just the look of him and mm. everything like that. You know, the mad face and the mask and everything, and the way the way he walks or just kind of stomps down like some, you know, Jason Voorhees or. Michael Myers type he just you know he's very there's something just relentless in the way he goes and stuff like that which I thought was very was visually very striking mm. uh, you know when I watched them The um the 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 main design of Daimajin um was uh, done by uh, Rio uh, Ryosaku uh, Takeyama who had worked with Toho sci-fi god Eiji uh, Tsuburaya who designed Ultraman Godzilla yeah. all of those ones mm -hmm. um he was basically given the design of the original uh, Haniwa figurine and said I need you okay. to build him but build him full size. So uh, uh, Takeyama had to build a four and a half meter tall, full size prop version of Daimajin. And the interesting <laughs> thing about the film was, was that he, the, 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 the figure of Daimajin, the full size model, was delivered less than three weeks before the first film debuted in the cinema. Because uh, Daie was different from Toho and Toei in that their film processing plant was directly on studio. So every time the director okay. finished a, a rush for the day, it was instantly processed, and the very next day, the director could see the footage and go, we need to change this and we need to change that. So mm. the fact that the model was delivered three weeks before the premiere wasn't as worrying to them as they as it would have been for any other production. I imagine that if it was at Toho and it was delivered three weeks before the film, we'd have a very different-looking film. But mm. some interesting things about the film um, in terms of its production for Daimajin Dimension, as I said, was four and a half meters tall. And in the film, he's depicted as four and a half meters tall because the uh, main special effects guy um, wanted to be able to film a, f a figure who was big enough to dis cause destruction, but not so big mm -hmm. as to be Godzilla, you know, the size of a yeah. skyscraper and, and stomping mm -hmm. on people. So uh, the special effects team led by uh, Yoshiyuki Kuruda, he he basically wanted a model that could be physically maneuvered on set, but then for the live action plates, he could just superimpose special effects into the background. So when this thing was delivered, there was one guy inside the, 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 the model in the neck and head. And all he could move was he could move the head up and down, left and right. He could move the neck and mm. he could move the right hand. 
The right hand could also okay. pick up the giant so stone sword. So there was one scene in, in I think, the third, or said the second film, where there's this wonderful shot of the the warlord's uh, guys charging into the foreground, into the middle ground, and in the very background shot, Daimajin just simply turns around and begins to draw his sword in real time. It's it's a full shot in the set. I thought it was such an impressive shot. It's And you sit there going, well, that's 1966. That's a really good shot. Hmm. But the other thing about the film was, was that Daie were, as I said, uh, were kings of, of excess. They spent a lot of money on their productions. But one of the other things they recognized was what works for another studio wouldn't necessarily work for them. So they had to build a massive blue screen. And when I mean massive, I mean huge. I mean, this was 11 meters tall and it was f uh, four and a half meters wide. It had put out 100 kilowatts of power, and it was powered by 190 iodine bulbs. So our main hero uh, in the mask uh, was under something like 45 to 50 degrees of heat <laughs> and was having uh, potato uh, powder, um, coal dust, and everything else thrown at him. And he was told, you cannot blink. You're not allowed to blink. So the only thing he could physically look out of from the mask was his eyes. So every time they had to take a break and go, okay, we're going to reset the camera, he had to have the mask removed and he had to have tea bags put on his eyes to stop mm. his eyes from flaring up. And then when they reset the shot, they went, okay, back again. And he went right back to it. But apparently he was a trooper. He absolutely was committed to the role. Um, he'd never done um, uh, the man in the suit work before. But he was totally committed to the character to the point of he would stay in the suit for hours and hours and hours just to get the shot that they wanted. And when it was finally delivered, um, he had been in the suit for something like two and a half months, three and a half months. Because the film was started in uh, January, I believe, and it was wrapped up at around late March, early April, because the first film came out in April of 1966. So he had been in that suit for two or three months. And I know that the Godzilla team who were in those suits, they were in it for a good few weeks, but I don't think any of the Godzilla actors ever had to stay in the suit for that long. No, for, but he does a great job. You get a, mm. and it's interesting hearing about like how little he could move stuff because it does. And, and also you know, talking about the golem and everything, because mm. he does achieve that kind of like robot, like yeah. or statue, like movement in a very, you know, in quite a cool way, which mm. again, again, just having assumed it was going to be a, a man in suit, normal Kaiju type thing was quite surprising. And the height was surprising as well because i expected him to be giant and the first couple times uh watching the first one seeing him i thought it was just maybe this something was off with the scale of them because mm. I, I assumed he was going to be like a proper big bastard and stuff but <laughs> then when you get used to it yeah visually there are there are a lot of very cool shots in there you know, i mean, I mean you, definitely the the production and the special effects they particularly in this version we're seeing now they look great they really yeah. look superb yeah. and i mean you know in the in the last one particularly at the beginning you, you get some really nice special effects going on as well, sort of cracking of the, the land and all the kind of, yeah, um, elements kind of coming up, you know, of the, the kind of volcano and so on. It's it, They're really nicely, really, they look really great. Yeah. They look absolutely superb. Yeah, the, the, the sets were designed at a particular scale. Normally for um, the Godzilla films, I think that the scale is much smaller to make Godzilla look more devastating. Yeah. But in this mm. case... Uh, as we were discussing, because he was only meant to be four and a half meters tall, uh, the bu the building sets were built at a scale of uh, one to two point five, which allowed the camera people to undercrank the camera, and it made uh, the 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 actor in the suit version of the monster, not the full size monster, but the guy in the suit version, when he destroyed the sets, was more ponderous. It looked like it had more energy to when he sm like there are multiple shots like. Uh, one of the things that always made me laugh when I was watching the trilogy was there's always one shot of them crowding towards the main gate to lock it behind them so that he can't get in. And the next shot is of him usually putting his fist through the roof or his foot through the door. It's repeated multiple times in the trilogy. It's one of those, guys, it didn't work in the first film. What makes you think it's going to work in the second? <laughs> but the footage that they shoot of him destroying the main gate and then destroying buildings around him, it's done very, very well in that you kind of can see as each panel comes apart, as every floor disintegrates around you. And then at the same time, because they were committed to filming this in a particular way, they, they, they made a decision that the director of photography 
and the effects team would also lens the main live action plates as well because they felt that having the one crew together would be better for continuity because most films at that time they had two separate teams one guy did the special effects uh, shots and the other guy did the live action shots but in this case they filmed all of it together so you have this wonderful symbiosis between the two plates where you'll see in the background you'll see Dimagin and he's wrecking a roof but in the foreground you have a full-size set of the roof with five or six guys with swords and a bow and arrow standing there trying to hide from him and he'll suddenly turn around spot them put his fist forward and then the next shot is of the roof disintegrating so it's it's a really well done effect for 1966 mm -hmm. and for when you consider the the kaiju films that were being made at the time the level of detail for that kind of shot is actually very very impressive production then? I mean, do you know, were they actually just shot in sequence? Like, shoot number one, then number two, number three? Or yes. did they shoot parts out of sequence? Or, you know, I'm just wondering why they chose to make, to shoot them in that in that kind of back-to-back -back way and everything, if they were still shooting the films in sequence. Um, In my research, I couldn't find a definitive reason as to why they shot all of them together. The yeah, only... It must have saved a, lot of, saved a lot of money. And, you know, even just on reusing, I imagine, costume sets, you know, his... You know the the Gaijima, Gaijima, you know uh, suit or you know the statue and stuff like that. So there must have been a lot of shared stuff. But it, it's just from a production point of view, just interesting because then logically it would have made more sense not to shoot the three things. Mm. You know, you know, because you would you, you wouldn't destroy some sets. You would maybe shoot from a back angle. Yeah. Then, so uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So looking into the details of the films, they were all separately shot. So each film had a separate director, and a yeah. So, yeah. But that was it. The only thing that was different was the director. It was the same writer, it was the same producer, same cinematographer, same special effects team. So each mm -hmm. director brought a different tone to each film, but continuity-wise, the films all looked the same in terms of their construction ethic, yeah. the costumes. And as we mentioned before, Daye did a lot of period drama, so their costume department had reams of costumes that they could call mm. upon that they would not have to wait for weeks to be designed they could just simply pull them off the shelf and go okay you're a soldier you're a lady in waiting uh, you're a villager go and do that mm -hmm. shot yeah it's just, it's just interesting modern you know, especially since they they were released in a fairly short ish period of time like mm -hmm. one after the other it wasn't like they held one back for a couple of years or anything so I just wonder how much of it was sort of made and the production was designed as some kind of when I mean, you know you said like specifically they were looking for you know not quite godzilla but another one of these types of films and everything i was just wondering if there was you know this kind of production then immediate release type plan for it because you know we didn't see more of him again afterwards did we like no he didn't, um, he didn't turn up in other stuff no he didn't fight he, any monsters or you go down the same route you know godzilla gamera or any of the others and we got to some pretty obscure kaiju films you know in the following mm -hmm. you know 10 20 yeah. years and stuff so i was just wondering why, why he didn't you know why he didn't come back or if this was just such a specific production you know get these three films done get them out or... according to the paperwork um he was supposed to come back in the 1980s for a new uh, trilogy and that never got off the ground and i've read um such wild stories as at one point they were going to do a film in which steven seagal was going to be in the yeah. film <laughs> yeah i saw yeah. i was talking to Andy about them before I mean, it's... and i'm trying to imagine that film and it doesn't work i'm but trying who, to so who would he have played would he have played Dijama himself or who would he have what, what was the <laughs> I, we will never know. We're just trying to imagine it. You're right. I can't like, imagine him uh, giving a stone performance like that. No, no. You <laughs> wouldn't want his face like masked up and everything. You know, he'd want some. Yeah. You know, some star presence. He like, he like Stallone playing Judge Dredd. Exactly. <laughs> 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 and takes off the mask and everything, and says a few words and everything of encouragement. But yeah, plays, just plays, bare, a few, plays a bit barely, of blues as well. Oh <laughs> barely whispers, "I am the law," and then just goes to work on killing Dimension. Um. 
I understand because his, his his daughter was in the Gamera films, wasn't she? Yes, um, because I they guess were, that's the connection. Yeah, they were being produced at Dia at the time, and the yeah, connection yeah. was was that because his daughter was doing the Gamera films, they kind of approached him and said, "Would you like to be in Dimension?" And mm. apparently, he was okay with it, but it just never got off the ground. Then I read that at one point they were going to do a revival in the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, and somehow mm -hmm. Kevin Costner was attached to it at one point. Again, it's one of those things where you kind of don't know whether to believe that or whether it actually happened and it just never ha got past pre-production because it would have been an interesting film. I, the Kevin Co yeah, this, the Seagal one probably just funny. The Kevin Costner one, somehow that's more bizarre even. Seagal's <laughs> such a, well, however we describe him, ego, mad bastard type and everything, whereas Kevin Costner would have taken himself quite seriously as yeah. an actor yeah. and stuff like yeah, you know, I mean, so I think it would have been interesting to see how that was, how that would have played out. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Kevin Costner until very recently, when he he starred as um, uh, Clark Kent's dad in the Superman uh, films. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. That's I think the first time Costner had ever done like a massive budgeted film. So for him to attach himself to something like Dimension earlier in his career, that. Uh, it, it, I tend to, to to think the Steven Seagal story is true, and I kind mm -hmm. of tend to think that Kevin Costner is a bit more untrue. It's kind of wish fulfillment that they wanted Kevin Costner for the role. It's completely <laughs> random wish fulfillment. But no, I agree. The Steven Seagal one probably just because of the link with his daughter, and you know he was out in Japan a lot because he thought he was a some kind of samurai reincarnation <laughs> and everything. So, <laughs> like one of the many reincarnations he's been or yes. hasn't been. Yes. So I can, I can actually believe they probably got to some chat about it. I mean, that seems believable, and it's just a shame we've been robbed of it. You know, I mean, could yeah. still happen. Seems unlikely. Um, uh, one of the things I, I when I was researching the film, um, uh. Dimagine's trilogy was released over April, August, and December of '66, and interestingly enough, the first film came as a double bill with Gamera versus uh, Baragon. So, oh, okay, you would go into watching Dimagine, you know, vengeful yeah. ka uh, kami god, and then you would just go into a giant turtle battling an, an equally large kaiju. So, I would imagine that that was the whole idea. It's like, well, we're never going to get anyone to sit down and watch uh, an hour and a half worth of a stone statue stomping on yeah. someone's castle, but we will get them if they come and see the, the giant uh, turtle. For sure. Were they, were they popular? Do you know the, the, Dijim, the three Dijimin ones and everything? Were they compared to, even compared to other ones of the time and stuff? I, from what I can research, um, Dimension was a success, you know. You know, Daiei were happy with it. It wasn't nearly as successful as the, the Showa-era um, Gamera films that they had made at the same period. No. But it was, you know, it was fine and, and, and uh, it made money. The problem was, was that, as I mentioned before, um, the studio head, uh, Masichi Nagata, he spent lavishly not only on film mm. production, but he also took care of his, his staff. He threw massive parties for the crew and the cast. And unfortunately, you know, as we all know, you you call the tune, you got to pay the piper. And eventually, Daiei went into severe financial distress and were basically shut down in 1971. So okay. the film was, or the studio was acquired by uh, Toko Uma Shoten, who many fans of Studio Ghibli will recognize as the studio that helped financially set up Ghibli and uh, f distributed a lot of their films in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, okay. The studio was eventually acquired by Katakawa, so now it's now like yeah. Katakawa Daiei Motion Picture, and then attach about fifteen other names to the the, the studio. So, so, but that's maybe why then we didn't get more more of him and stuff. Because if it was the early seventies, then when they were taken over, then yeah, you know, another another the other studios maybe just weren't as interested in doing this kind of. When I lined up all of the timeline of you know the problems with the studio and the various mm. other companies that acquired the studio. Like you said, James, they kind of happen at times when there was news or there was a, a rumor that they were going to make another Dimension, and then somebody yeah. acquires the studio, and then that stops. Especially, but you know, you, you talked about the production values, production design, and stuff like that. And whatever the the reason for shooting three films back to back, you know, mm. maybe this was, you know, more of a a timely and costly uh, endeavor mm. than some of the other kaiju things and everything. So maybe, you know, and I, I guess as well, like now knowing that he's only four and a, you know, four and a half meters tall, he's not going to have too much chance 
fighting other mm. kaijus and stuff. He's a bit wee for that, like. So. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there wasn't too much crossover. Unless they got all three of them from each movie. <laughs> Get <laughs> them all together, out. backing each other. Yeah, maybe had some of that. Or maybe he just got some Jet Jaguar where he just grows big for no reason. I don't, I don't think people would have complained massively. But, you know, I guess he was set in that far in the past and everything. So, I don't know. Just It's just interesting because it, it does seem a bit different to more crafted and stuff than some mm. of the other kaiju ones. Mm. And um, especially after what you've been telling us with all these religious elements and stuff, which is interesting too. Whereas you, most of the other ones, you know, are pretty straightforward, to put it that way. And yeah. Um he did come back for a TV show, um, I think, um, I cannot remember if it's the late 1990s or the uh, late 1980s, I cannot remember off the top of my mm. head. But essentially, it was a modern retelling of the of the first movie, but told okay. from a, a modern perspective. So yeah. the events of the, how he became the Mountain of the God, which are mentioned in the first film, are kind of like rapidly done in flashback for the first episode and then Daimajin is in the real world in like then modern Tokyo for the rest of the <laughs> That's, that sounds good he I have not, so I, confused I, by everything I, I couldn't find any footage on uh, YouTube um, I, I, I did look for it but either I was searching for the wrong thing or I kept getting the film um, and, and clips from right. it but I would imagine that the TV show was kind of like more like monster of the week it, it yeah, kind of it, yeah, it, I don't yeah. think you could have a show in which every episode is Daimajin killing a local bad guy because he's oppressing the local. <laughs> I, I don't think that would work. No, I probably probably wouldn't. Oh, but... I well, I mean, but if it it does speak to the sort of unsophisticated TV shows we used to have in our childhood, which would, would well, basically true. be the same episode. Like Godzilla cartoon or something yeah, like that, where it was basically a different. Yeah, yeah, the true. Invader. They're all you know, it's all basically the same story every week. It's not like there's a running. No, that's true. But yeah, they could have focused on, on more of that kind of golem aspect of it mm. and everything like that, where you, you could have been brought back for different reasons. Or, um, because in the first, am I right that in the first film, like to bring him back, they have to stab something to his head, or was that the second one? No, that's the first that's film. The first uh, one. That's the, the first one. Because that, that was the same as not the same as the golem, but the golem you had to you had to write that word. I forget what it is. You had to write the word on the forehead mm. uh, as well to bring them back. So they could have gone down that route and everything, and like different people bringing him back for different schemes and everything that. Like, Sometimes trying to trick him into doing a robbery, or you know everything like that. They could have had fun with it, but it's interesting. Maybe that in the future, you never know. It's interesting that in the first two films, uh, the god is kind of awoken from its slumber, but by being attacked. So in the first film, as as you mm. said, James, he has a spike driven through his head, and that Just, that yeah, finally spike, wakes him yeah. up. But in the second film, he's actually dynamited, and I mean dynamited. They pack mm, him full mm. to the gills with dynamite and blow him up. That's how yeah. he's awoken. But in the third film, he's not attacked. He's not. Um, damaged by the local warlords he's brought back by the the, the death of a child which again yeah. as I said it kind of makes the third film stand out from the first two films in that it's reasoning behind why this god operates the way that it does is totally different because yeah. when it moves from like the mainland area of like the Kyoto Osaka area to northern Hokkaido the entire intent of the monster changes completely to suit the mm -hmm. fact that in that region it would have a totally different meaning to have that kind of god on the mountain. No, no, fair enough. It's, it's interesting, you know, getting to pick up on these sort of cultural uh, folklore type aspects and everything. Yeah, but it does yeah. give it a bit more, um, does give it a bit more depth and stuff. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess if they continued and we had seen him come with, coming up against others and stuff, then his you know his credentials would have been diluted mm. <laughs> yeah. gradually till he till he ended up the same way as godzilla yeah. like you know it sounds like with the you know with the third one stuff getting kids in there is okay but maybe he'd have been dancing with them a few mm. films later yeah <laughs> the other the other thing i wanted to mention was the films all three films score were attributed to by akira uh whom um, Kaiju fans will know more famously as he's the guy who composed all of the original uh, showa era uh, Godzilla uh, films. I think he scored and nine. You can hear yeah, it as well. So you, similar you, in places. You can, you can really hear that. It's like a slowed down version in some places. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very, very Stinky, Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's his score is kind of it's less kind of monster uh, of the week kind of score, and it kind of incorporates a bit more of the elements of the Mysterians, which he worked on, which kind of like okay. is more of a sci-fi film, but for mm. um. The only kind of element that I kind of think is going like, oh, it's kind of more like Godzilla is Daimajin's theme itself is kind of yeah, yeah. very ponderous. It's got a lot of 
uh, percussion where it kind of times itself up to the monster moving down the mountain kind mm-hmm. of thing as it kind of it builds up as if it's like a wave about to crash against the shore so in that like he apparently according to the behind the scenes he set himself a task of i don't want to make a score like godzilla and in the end he ended up making a score that was kind of close to godzilla without being a godzilla uh, i think it's pretty godzilla to be fair i mean it's, yeah. it's good i still like yeah, it yeah and it's def- it, yeah it is a bit different to it but it's still very like exactly like you said like it's tiny with the sort of boom boom footsteps and everything and you're right it just doesn't quite as monstery because i guess the other thing is the more we're talking about this film the more i'm convinced that the third film had a deliberate intent to kind of separate it away from the first two films because the other thing is Mm. uh ifukube's score for the third film um ifukube grew up in hokkaido and he spent a lot of time listening to ainu music from Mm. the local people who lived there because the town that he lived in about half the people in the town were ainu so he spent a lot of time listening to Ainu music. The other thing was was that his older brother listened to a lot of classical music. So that's where uh, Ifukube's kind of tastes met, and he kind of learned how to to be a composer and a film composer through those two um, influences. But the third score or the third film score is kind of different from the other ones. They're still kind of like the the Daimajin theme as he kind of starts to his make his uh, walk towards the castle. But a lot of the the score is more Ainu in, in incorporation. Because mm. he kind of understood the brief that the mm. people who are on this mountain are not the same as the people who are around the first two mountains or island in this in case of the second film. But his score for the third film is a lot more um, naturalistic. It's less orchestral. It's more kind of low-key. As the children make their way across the mountain, there are these low-key moments where they talk, they laugh, they have their, their trials and tribulations. And then it kind of cuts back to the adults who are in the in the film. So it cuts mm-hmm. back to their parents, and it's more traditional. And it cuts back to the bad guys who are kind of more villainous in t- intent. So I like that uh, Ifukube kind of, bl- in the third film, he kind of blends the two separate universes together into a nice little kind of hole at the end of the film. Where you can kind of feel that the two tones, the Ainu-inspired parts of the score, and the more traditional kind of, the rest of the Daimajin trilogy music kind of meets in the middle. So at the very end of the film, you have this kind of synthesis between the two themes. Oh, the other thing I, I forgot to mention is if you guys um, uh, pick this up or you see it on um, on online or you, you're watching it on like a streaming platform and, and you see the posters that um, you have the monster, so you either see the original posters or you might see Arrow mm. stuff. The yes. monster has basically the armor and, and, and clothing that he wears is, is as close to the Haniwa statue as possible but his mask so basically in this you know like in every kaiju film there's a moment where the monster powers up so in in the film he kind of crosses his hands over his face and when he does it goes from Mm. being a clay mask to being kind of a a kami kind of uh, kind of uh, what's the other one Uh, kind of an ori kind of demonic mask the other thing Mm. about the mask is other than it's green apparently the special effects guys were just like I just thought he should have a green mask. No one told me to make it green. I just decided that green was a cool color. So he made it green. But the other thing was, was that one of the guys who was handling the special effects uh, said that Karuda kind of um, was overseeing the design. And when Takayama was building the set, the, the mask and what have you, he gave a cleft in the chin. And apparently it's because he'd just seen Kirk Douglas in the film and he really liked Kirk Douglas's <laughs> chin cleft. So that's where the cleft comes from. I must admit, that's an, unex- yeah. that's an unexpected but very interesting bit of info, man. It's just <laughs> like... Kirk Douglas. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention was the films themselves. Um, so the first film was directed by Kimiyoshi Yosuda and he's most famous for having done the Daiei Zaroishi films from the mid-60s. So he kind of 
when he was told, by the way, your brief is uh, 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 a Daimo is killed by his uh, Chamberlain and a monster gets unleashed on the, the, the Chamberlain's force at the end. He kind of understood that brief and went, oh, okay, gotcha. I know how to do this kind of film. The other, uh, the second film was uh, Kenji uh, Misumi, and he is uh, famous for the early Zatoichi films from uh, Daiei, and he also directed the Lone Wolf and Cub series of films. Mm. So the second film is kind of more, uh, it's less kind of samurai adventure, kind of cutting people down. It's more kind of brutal kind of realism. So I think mm. he was perfect for that kind of role. Um, and the final film was Kazuo Mori, who um, I did, like, he has done a ton of work, but the only thing I could really find that kind of set, set, suited the bill for this kind of project was Vendetta for a Samurai, which I believe stars uh, Toshio Mifune. And he also did tons of uh, Dai Geki genre films for um, Daiei in particular. So mm. again, it, it seemed to me that the project itself was kind of, they drew on people who knew how to do period drama, but they also had yeah, an experienced yeah. effects team who would back them up for the more supernatural elements to the project. But it also kind of says a lot about the pacing of these films, and mm. that, you know, so much of them yeah. is is this, the the samurai period drama until you get to the end, fifteen yeah. minutes, as we've said. Well, especially mm. since I mean, what, four and a half meters. How many people is that? He's only like four people tall, I guess, or something. He's not that big. Yeah. <laughs> could have stopped. Could have stopped if they had the cannon. They could have easily stopped them. Actually, yeah. actually, there was there was a scene in the film, and I think it's the. I'm trying to. Re you have to remember, like I watched all of these back to back uh, last night. <laughs> I, I watched them. I watched them earlier in the week, and then I had to watch them again for the the, the special features. So I watched them all back to back. So just bear with me. So I think in the second film, um, yeah. oh no, it's, uh, my apologies. It's the third film where the local warlord is building his massive line of cannons to kill other people in other uh, kingdoms nearby. Also, I want to find out how close you have to be in a Japanese kingdom to be able to fire a cannon, which is essentially a 16th century cannon that's going to hit them from that far away. But apparently he did. Just to, to go back to what you were just saying there, mm -hmm. James, they actually turned the cannons on him at one point. Yeah, okay. And um, the film kind of makes a point throughout the trilogy that traditional weapons don't work against them yeah one of the things yeah. i did dig up from the notes was was that according to the film's production team daimajin is not so much a real figure like a like a real four and a half foot tall stone mm. tablet he's more of a a, a spirit rather oh, than no. a physical being so when they hit him with cannons and fire and they i think they roll tree trunks down on on his feet at one point mm. he just simply steps over all of it or he just ignores it because it yeah. doesn't I think they kind of they kind of do they do kind of talk about that thing in particularly in the first one where it is it you know much more about the Maijan spirit that yeah. that, that that enters him and it that, that actually is yeah you know, just kind of a, a representation of yeah. of this this god rather than actually being mm. if he destroyed it then he yeah he'd yeah. probably just go and find another one mm. and, and possess and sex it's the spirit not yeah, it's the same as like the golem again and stuff. Like yeah, you're, it, conjuring, you're conjuring a spirit into a vessel. Yeah, because um, in the in the second film, he's actually totally destroyed. So yes, the yeah, the, exactly. So that I imagine that kind of rises up, splits the island in half, and then parts the Red Sea kind of shot. Yeah, that's not actually the the statue that was destroyed. That is basically his yes. spiritual yeah. essence. So again, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's one of yeah. those things where it's it's less about the physical manifestation of the creature, but more about the, the spiritual manifestation of the creature. Again, it plays into that thing of throughout the first film and the second film, the, the local priestess in the first film and then Lady Sayuri kind of, they make a point to tell the bad guys all the time that you're mm. messing with forces that you can't possibly understand. <laughs> like the, the, the priestess in, the, in the, the first film, she makes a point to tell the main bad guy that you're really screwing around with something you have no control over <laughs> and you're going to die. She actually says three times, you're going to die. You're really <laughs> going to die. She she gets cut up twice, falls to the ground, and she's like, yeah. you're going to die. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you one thing. Um, yeah, it was more of a wrap-up type question. Hmm. Type one. I was going to say, you know, so we've got Dijerman coming out. Like, Is there any other ones kind of left? 
which haven't kind of been re- released by now. And we've had so much of the Godzilla well, the, the, stuff. The, the Arrow have got their Yokai Monsters trilogy coming out soon, haven't they? They do. And the other thing is, is that I might be wrong, but I think Daimajin makes an appearance in Great Yokai War. Um, oh, the Miike one. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't tell you if it's just kind of like a, a, a significant part or if he's just a cameo or something like that. He is supposed to apparently turn up in a, in a yokai or kaiju movie in 2021 in Japan. Uh, mm. He's prominently displayed on the poster. And he's uh, more mm. kind of like, okay. uh, well, we need to design a, a Daimajin for like the crowd that went to see the legendary uh, Godzilla films. So he looks more... I want to say kind of brutalizing. Like, you know, his armor is much more elaborate. The mask is yeah. huge. The helmet is massive. But I only got to see, like, a poster of the film, so I can't tell you anything about that project. <laughs> he might still be four and a half meters tall. <laughs> <laughs> they could have bulked out the other way. Like, they bulked out Godzilla, but, you know, he yeah. looked like he'd been, you know, not on a diet, mm. put it that way. So maybe, maybe with Dijamin as well, he, he's been... Working out, eating yeah. too much, yeah. a bit, he's bit, like, bit too much sake. He's he's just he's decided now that he's coming, making his big comeback. So he's got to get into shape for his, his next match. Stretching um, himself a bit. <laughs> the Diamond trilogy is available now as a limited edition free disc Blu-ray from Arrow Video um, across various territories. I think as as well their stuff is now, uh, and absolutely jam-packed with mm. extras audio commentaries, booklet notes, everything, really. But let's move on to some Ease and Kicks picks. Yes, yes. A uh, bit of a leaner, a leaner time. I mean, compared to you know recent podcasts where we've had a lot of stuff. So I don't have a massive amount for you. But um, Amazon Battle Royale has been added. Not the director's cut but then as we know they don't always list things correctly mm-hmm. so it might be the director's cut uh joko anwar's gondala is superhero which i still haven't watched so oh, yeah. um i'm quite looking forward to checking that out mm. uh he obviously you know, mostly known for his uh horrors and black magic stuff but he i remember him saying that they wanted to establish some kind of like marvel style superhero it's a it's a it's own universe that the, yeah. the, there are going to be a series of films so mm. um chemo is working that's on one right. of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So and several of are that tight set of, of guys, the Mo brothers. <laughs> and... <laughs> exactly, man. That would be cool. So I'm looking forward to watching that. Um, and I also saw the the Chinese queer film, like a dog barking at the moon, is on mm-hmm. Amazon, which I came across randomly. Which are, of course, are, it was random. Of course, it's fucking Amazon. That is random as hell. But you know, which are our good friends at Queer East screened recently, I believe. So mm. that's that's going to mm. be. I'm, yeah, I'm going to check that out. Um, Netflix, uh, bizarrely, Time and Tide has landed, which, you know, we obviously we talked about in a previous past, which seems really weird timing. That that's mm. actually come not long after this. And is that release. You can't tell because it's Netflix. So uh, it, it doesn't say who's put it up there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's a slightly strange one, to be honest. Uh, Ashen of the North, um, which I've mentioned before, but I finally watched, like the Kingdom special. Mm. Uh, pointless, but not bad it's not bad hopefully that means they won't have any flashbacks when we, <laughs> when we get to kingdom season three we won't you know have lots of flashbacks to who she is but it's okay it's just not a massive amount of point to it um and there's a thai film called deep on there which weirdly has five directors it's like a sci-fi one about sleep experiments um no idea with the five directors but it looks quite interesting in the mm. trailer so yeah that, and that's yeah. it like i say not much this month man Thanks for Philip joining us and uh, with such enlightening knowledge about the Dimajin. Very honestly, that was fascinating because I didn't, you know, even having a quick look at stuff around it, but online, I didn't, I didn't pick up 
even half of that. So yeah, it's very cool, man. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. I, 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 I have to say uh, thanks, TJ, um, to uh, Andrew especially because um, I'd completely forgotten about Dimagine. Like I'd seen the, the Mill Creek <laughs> set. I was like, oh, I'm not going to get that because Mill Creek are terrible at their jobs. And when it came up again, I was like, oh, I should pre-order this because it's going to go out of stock like the bloody Gamera box set went out of stock. <laughs> so that's it for the episode. Uh, don't forget you can find all our previous episodes on Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now and you'll never miss an episode. <laughs> but for now, cheers. Cheers. cheers.